0: Welcome to Broadway Refocused, a podcast based on the Broadway Refocused project. This project explores Broadway's past with a new lens to understand Broadway's future. In each podcast episode, we will amplify the stories of women, queers, black, indigenous, and people of color in musical theater. We will listen, learn, and refocus so we can move forward in a more diverse and inclusive way. Broadway Refocused is hosted and taught by Spencer Williams, a musical theater educator, composer, and playwright. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode.
1: I am very excited to welcome my good friend Blair Russell, an independent Broadway producer to Broadway Refocused. Blair specializes in bringing new plays and musicals to Broadway and was recently on the producing team of the Broadway hit play, A Slave Play. Coming to us from Mexico City, we are excited to learn more about his musical theater background, what it was like to be one of the only black producers on A Slave Play, and also what he believes on how Broadway will and can change in the future. Before we dive into this week's episode, we want to thank you, the listener and student, for supporting Broadway Refocused. Without your support, we wouldn't be able to share these important stories. In unit one of Broadway Refocused, we explored how queers, Jews, immigrants, and blacks set the stage for the American musical theater. Today, we will listen to a snippet from Bob Cole and J. Rosamond Johnson's song, Under the Bamboo Tree, which sold over 400,000 copies when first released in 1902. It was then featured in the hit movie musical, Meet Me in St. Louis, sung by Judy Garland and Margaret O'Brien. Here's Under the Bamboo Tree. Learn more about other black composers that influenced Broadway in unit one on broadwayrefocus.com under the classroom tab. Please share with your family and friends so that we can continue these powerful conversations about diversity and inclusion on Broadway. And now this week's episode. Why don't we start with a little background on how you got into musical theater.
2: I grew up in Northern Virginia, really close to Washington DC and not in a place where people cared about theater at all. My school didn't fund the arts. There was nothing like we we had a really nice auditorium. It was not a theater. It was an auditorium because there was no fly space. And we just, I don't even know how things happened. Parents donated time and money and we just made it work. And I learned through that to fill in where I was needed and do what needed to be done. I would perform in the shows and be in the chorus, but also be the stage manager and also be the assistant director and also do makeup for people who had never done their own makeup before. Because of that experience through school, I ended up going to college, Virginia Commonwealth University for stage management. I was in school for two and a half years, and then I did a semester out in Las Vegas for Cirque du Soleil, where I did like an independent study. I actually learned so much in that semester that I couldn't have possibly learned just in school. I was like really excited to get out into the workforce, so I finished my degree in three years. I started doing a little bit of freelance stage management. I worked at the Santa Fe Opera. I worked at Opera Santa Barbara in Santa Barbara, California. And eventually, I got a job at Goodspeed Musicals in Connecticut as a stage manager. And Goodspeed is a famous regional theater that is known as the birthplace of Annie and Man of La Mancha and Shenandoah and all those great old shows. While I was working at Goodspeed, I did a couple of shows as a stage manager, which was awesome because I was able to see a few different directors, different designers, different actors all working. And I realized I was really interested in how shows come together. And I was very lucky because for the first time ever, they needed an assistant in the producing office. So I was in the right place at the right time and I applied for the job and they were, I think it was partially like, you're already here. So you know what the deal is because it's rural Connecticut. There's not a lot going on. There's no town. You're just out in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't come alive until summer. So. I got that job working for the producers at Good Speed and it was just it was great to to learn what it means to be a producer or to begin to learn what it means to be a producer. I still don't know everything, but that's where I met Spencer there. I met so many great artists performers, writers, directors, designers, everything. And that really taught me that I wanted to be a producer of shows. I wanted to be able to support work that I really liked. And I wanted to be able to bring people together, make those connections and just make art. I see passionate people working on, on great art and I wanna be able to support them.
3: When you were at Goodspeed, how many shows did you work on? Talk a little bit about their new works.
2: Initiative right. At Goodspeed, we had two spaces, a bigger theater, which is the opera house, which is the main space, and then the terrace theater, which was in an old knitting needle factory that had been converted into a theater. And at the opera house, it was typically older shows, revivals or revisals, as they called them, because Goodspeed was known for many years of taking really obscure old shows that even I was like, I've never heard of this. And they would rewrite the, the book all the dialogue and maybe change some of the songs and give it a new life. And then in the Terrace Theater, that was normally brand new shows maybe needed to do a little bit of development and do a practice run outside of new york with no reviewers or nothing and so they did that there and then Goodspeed also had a festival of new musicals which was three new shows that were just doing book in hand readings and so throughout the season i would work on the three shows at the opera house the three at the terrace three shows at the festival and then there would be other workshops or readings. We did a, a writer's retreat. So I was often meeting with writers there. So yeah, it was a lot of a lot of shows and a lot of different people. <laughs> and they would we'd be rehearsing one show and then in performances for that and then start rehearsing the other show in the main space. And then the other show in the second space would be running. And so there was always like three casts at one time at, at good speed.
3: Within the Norma Terrace Theatre, how many new works did you
2: work through? I saw about 10 shows go through the Norma Terrace, yeah. It's really important to find shows that spoke to the moment that we were living in and spoke to the audience that we had. The, The audience that is that good to meet is an older, more traditional audience. And so if we wanted wanted to speak to them about some modern ideas, it had to be in a more traditional way. So something like Hamilton would never have worked at Goodspeed. Like it doesn't matter how good it is like it's just this the audience wouldn't really be able to understand uh, where it's coming from. So we were all often working in that that middle ground of wanting to find contemporary shows that were not too challenging. <laughs> challenging is a favorite word of, of anybody who runs a theater or a producer. Not too challenging, but still seemed uh, contemporary and still seemed like they weren't telling important stories. So we we're always trying to find something in that area. Yeah.
3: What was the most challenging piece that was developed through Goodspeed?
2: You'd be, it, we would be surprised. Because we would think some a very simple show that was like, oh, okay, like the audience will be into that. Like, we do talkbacks, and they would say, "I was offended by this," and I was didn't like that, and I, because I guess a lot of people wanted to see things that were just like happy and dancy and smiley, and so anytime there was anything that was tough for them, tough topics, uh, they sort of. Would get upset <laughs> they're like i didn't come to the theater to to be sad i came to the theater to be happy people didn't like if there was uh, any kind of serious topics or too much drama I've, we've got that that note a lot too much drama
3: <laughs> it's interesting to kind of hear that they don't want any drama
2: <laughs> <laughs> and i think <laughs> um the producers at the time and have continued to try to change that and you know, say, it's not, it's not so bad. Uh, and also the festival is a place where we were able to try out more challenging works because that's a much smaller audience and they all want to see what's new and what's coming up. So
3: how did you jump from that
2: to a slave play? Right. Like talk about
3: challenging. I mean, I think you probably went to the complete opposite <laughs> spectrum of theater, right? Talk about that journey a little bit, because I'm interested to hear what changed for you or or how you grew inside of that.
2: Right. I guess it's, I've always been a fan of more challenging works, things that really ask tough questions or present it in a, a new experimental or kind of out there way. And, you know, often in theater, you don't really get to choose what you work on. You, you work on what the theater's doing or what you're hired to do and because you have to have a job. So I guess for me, maybe part of why I wanted to be a producer is because I could decide what I wanted to work on. And <laughs> I had been asked to join a couple of Broadway shows before, and I was like, mm, okay, they didn't seem that interesting, and you have to raise a lot of money for it, and it's it's not very good. And then I was invited by one of the other producers on slave play to go see it while it was off Broadway. And I saw it. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. I I sort of left that night and I was talking to people and I was like, I don't know how I feel. And it really took me like months to even form an opinion and be like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was, I liked that. that. That was, yeah, I liked that. And I saw it in December. By, I think the end of June, the producer, Greg Noble, who was one of the the lead on that show was saying, okay, we're going to take it to Broadway and we were opening in September. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. So I said, yes. (laughs) And then I had to backtrack and convince myself that it was actually a good idea. But it, it was for me, it was about if I'm going to try this, if I'm going to put my whole heart into a project, it needs to be something I'm passionate about. And I was so passionate about something that would not only challenge people off Broadway or anywhere, but to have it on Broadway and to be presenting a show uh, with a Black writer and a Black director and this just great, amazing cast. I was like, this is the... If I never produce anything ever again on Broadway, I, I want this to be it. And I want to go down in flames. So that's, that was kind of like, how, you know, because there's always a chance if you're raising money for something, you know, you can say, cool, I'll put some here, put some effort here. But I, I was like, no, I want it to be something I really, really care about. How did that happen with Greg? We had known each other for years. I actually met him while I was at Goodspeed he produced A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. And I was, I want to say I was 24 when I was working there and he was 23 and he won a Tony when he was 23. And so when he came up to good speed to do a meeting, I like looked at it. I was like, whatever, like, pff, how is somebody younger than me? You're going to have a Tony. So I was like, I don't like that guy. But then I was like, actually, I should probably get to know that guy, cause we're the same age and you know, we can work together. So <laughs> I, we started talking and I ended up sort of uh, helping him on some prior shows, seeking investments, but not really as a producer, maybe just investing myself. And then when slave play came around, he was like, one, I think like you want to start producing more. And I was like, yes. And I had actually told myself I am a producer because before I was always just, Sort of like, well, I want to be a producer, maybe I'll be a producer. And like one day when I grow up, you know, <laughs> I'll be a producer. And he was, he, he just sent me to the show. I saw the show and then he was like, I think it's your time. And I was like, yes. So it was honestly that, that simple as me having it inside. I want to do this and then having the right project come along.
3: Why don't you give a little background on a Slave Play and why it was challenging
0: um,
2: right. for audiences? The playwright Jeremy O'Harris was a a student at Yale when he wrote it. He was actually, he had just graduated the spring prior to opening on Broadway, which is like, if you can make that your career, (laughs) good for you. So he was, he, he wrote the play. I think he said he was at a party and he was having a conversation with somebody and it like the conversation just sparked to this idea and he like had to go home and write it that day. And he wrote it and he performed it at Yale and, people were just like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to feel about this, but people wanted to see it. It was, you know, selling out. There were no seats available. It was so interesting uh, when I saw it off Broadway is that Jeremy is from Virginia. He's from Southern Virginia, Martinsburg. And I went to school in Richmond, Virginia. And one part from his own life that he put in the play is this idea that when you are a child in Virginia, you do a field trip to a plantation like no, you will absolutely do multiple field trips to a plantation. And if you're someone like me who grew up in an an area that's mostly white you're the only (laughs) black kid in a class who's on a field trip to a plantation and. Not only are you too young to like really process anything or understand anything, you're you're like six, seven, you're like, okay, I understand what this is, but I have no way of processing it. You also have people looking at you like you have some kind of special insight into what's going on. And you're like, honestly, I just happy we're not at school today. You know, (laughs) like you don't really think about it, but it is kind of crazy that, that's a normal thing. And nobody was ever like, should we do this? Should we take uh, 30 kids just to kind of be wild uh, on a plantation? And so knowing that Jeremy had had that same exact experience, that really hit me when I was watching the show. It was almost like it was pulled from my own life. And, you know, one of the couples, the partner was English and I have an English partner. So I was kind of like, why are you taking my life and how did you know? Why did you steal my life? So that so th- the experience of the show, and I think crossed with how much it sort of took pieces from my life from my own personal experiences, that's what really made me say, I have to be a part of this.
3: I know that there was multiple producers on A Slave
2: Play. What was that like? Was there other Black producers on that? One of the reasons why I was able to do the show is because I had conversations with Greg about what producing would be, And what it would mean in this context, some really big musicals, you have lead producers, maybe two or three, then you have some associates, some co-producers who do work, and then you have a bunch of people who are producers. They're there, they help, they raise money, but they don't really have a say in the process. And so for me, it was really important that I have a say in the process. I also really trust Greg because I've worked with him before. So I knew we could have the open dialogue and have the conversation. Something that he also did that's untraditional is he made Jeremy O'Hara as the playwright, a producer. And that almost never happens. And, you know, he, he wanted him to be able to use his voice in that way, to be at that table and be able to say, yes, I agree with this marketing. And yes, I agree with that, or no, I don't want that. And so we'll talk about it, but some of the big initiatives were just Jeremy as a producer being able to say, I want this to happen. So in the room, you know, it's kind of crazy how wild putting a show together for Broadway is because someone literally just says it's happening, we have a theater, and then you start raising money and you start trying to, to get the cast that you want and the designers and the director. And so sometimes you'll have someone who might want to be a producer on the show, but for whatever reason, they, they don't make it to opening night and like opening night is the day it's you're either a producer or you're not. And so I had, there were there was one other Black producer on the team who actually had to leave before opening night. So it actually ended up being just me. And there were a couple of people because sometimes like a company will produce. And we had a company called Level Forward and Nine Stories, which one is Abigail Disney, one is Jake Gyllenhaal. Like they're kind of producing companies. And within those companies, there were um, other people of color on the team and other Black people. But none of them were like, coming to the table singularly as their own person, as their own voice. So ultimately I was the only black person around that table, having to hold it down for everyone, (laughs) to be the representative for everyone uh, at the producing tables. It was a very good experience. It was not without challenges and not without moments where I was like, oh, I'm, I have a thought or a feeling that I can't really express because no one else on the table will know what I'm talking about. And then also it will just be like, I'm being difficult. <laughs> so often I would have to sit back and be like, just listen. Yeah. And be like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Great. Like, and kind of let it go or bringing it up at a different moment. Cause it's just easier that way.
3: Within the initiatives, what were some of them? I know that there was a $39 ticket initiative. And right. then there was something that I like, we want to talk about with the blackout on September 19th. Mm -hmm. I think there were others. There were actually. Yeah.
2: Jeremy demanded that there always be $39 tickets available to the show and that we wouldn't raise the price if it became really popular, which it did, but that those would always be available no matter what, no code necessary, no standing, you know, doing the rush line at 5am, nothing. Like you can just go and buy a $39 ticket, which as producers is scary. We could also make it twice that much and get our money back twice as quickly but we we said we want to make it accessible to the audience that jeremy wants so we we made sure that those 39 nine dollar tickets were available to each performance uh, we also did something later in the run where we allowed people to do like a broadway plus one which is when you were buying a ticket you could pay a certain amount i think it was like an additional 25 dollars to subsidize a ticket for someone else so people would go and they'd be like buying a ticket and it basically it was just like, hey, if you want to buy a ticket for someone who may not be able to afford it, you know, just add another $25. And if you're spending $200, you're like, sure, another $25. What's the difference? So we did that as well. And then of course, we did a blackout performance in the beginning of the run. The invited dress rehearsal was all students and people that couldn't and wouldn't buy a ticket. And I was there. It was a great great show we just invited a bunch of people to come in and it wasn't normally those can be like oh friends and family and industry people and people you want to see it but we just opened it up to people who want to come i think jeremy posted it on twitter <laughs> so <laughs> we had a lot of people a lot of people coming to that and then uh, we had the blackout performance which was also kind of wild because we didn't plan it before we started previews, we were like, I think we'll do this. And then we basically had to just take a, a whole performance and the, all the seats and say, we're going to just make these available to artists, educators, students, people in the industry of color, uh, to come to this one performance. And we had like two ticket levels. And then a lot of it was just by invitation as well. And so the, I was there that night as well. And I brought a couple of friends and I don't think it's ever been done on Broadway before. And it was just kind of wild to see a completely different audience and a completely different energy. So to be in that room, it was just so free. It was just open. The people who were there, some of them had never imagined that they would go to a Broadway show and had never been in a Broadway theater before. They didn't have expectations. They didn't have all this history of trauma, bad experiences in in the theater. If you go to a show, you sort of find yourself performing, even if you're in the audience, you know, when you have to laugh a certain amount and when you're supposed to clap and when you're supposed to do this and this audience didn't like, it wasn't people who were like, oh, you wait till this moment to clap. And then it has to die down at a certain moment. It was like snaps and callbacks and cheers and everything that I'd never seen before in a Broadway audience. That was wonderful. And then we had to do it again at the end of the run. We did another one, which was just, just really great. It's history (laughs) that I was there for and I love it.
3: Within that.
2: So, when you go to a Broadway show, I mean,
3: the demographics, right, like are like 40 to 60 year old right. women. That's yes. like the main demographic, that is right? Audience. Yes. I have to ask to be in a space full of an audience of other people that look like you, which is never something that you experience. What was that like?
2: I just changed the way that I was able to relax in the theater. If you have a bad experience going to the theater, I think it sticks with you. I think it, it puts your guard up and being in that audience, I forgot about all of that. I forgot about all of the (laughs) bad experience because it didn't matter. I didn't feel like I was performing being a theater goer. I felt like I was just Blair in the audience of a show when you know too much it can sometimes be sort of a cage like i want to make sure i have my ticket out for the usher and i get my playbill and i'm very polite and i sit down and i don't like get up and you know i don't go sit down if i'm in the middle until other people come so that we're not in the way and i'm not late and i don't get up during a scene and all these other things that you just always think about where they were just all gone and people just did kind of did what they wanted and it was great
3: (laughs) that's awesome moving forward in looking at new musicals or looking at other plays that you're interested in producing, what are you looking for? And what are you looking to like, with even just like amplifying new voices and different
2: things in the theater? I I really want to support work that is good. I really want to support work that touches me and touches people around me and speaks to them. I, I want to see new stories. I want to see new faces on stage. I want to see work presented in new ways. You can love these older shows and there was a time and a place for them and there's a reason that they existed and some of them in their own right were very challenging but i'm ready to produce new things that are are challenging for today that speak to people today that are presented in the language and in the musical styles of today
3: the last couple of months has been a lot of unrest right a lot of different things happening with covid and broadway shutting down and then the black lives matter protests going on Do you foresee the change? How do we push that change forward? I'm just curious of your perspective on that.
2: Yeah, I wish, I'm going to start out saying, yes, there's an opportunity. And also, I wish I was hearing more things that made me feel positive. We will absolutely see nonprofit theaters that own a Broadway stage show (laughs) and signal that they, they care about this and we'll see a change in... And some of the shows that they produce, I think we'll see some more opportunities come around for shows that are out there, written by BIPOC people. When COVID shut down Broadway, there were probably, I think 35 shows open at the time. It wasn't the full 41, but we're pretty close. And normal for spring, there were back-to-back openings. So the day, I think six was opening that night literally that night and shows were starting previews the next day who's afraid of virginia wolf uh the minutes was probably in the next week diana was happening a week or later that stuff still exists and a lot of people put money into it and a lot of people want it to perform and be on the stage there's probably not a great chance that those things are just going to disappear and make space for other people The the shows that were in process the shows that were in the pipeline people are still going to be pushing those forward. And unfortunately, they all look very similar and they appeal to a very similar audience. And there's also like, as as nice as the idea is that we could completely change it, you have to have the people in the spaces to change it. And that means theater owners who have people of color in their organizations. That means more producers like me who are there. That means people not being afraid and wanting to take risks and all these things that it's like, peeling the layers of an onion to get to the, the core of it, which is, we just have to do it like that. We just have to do it. And when I think about that, I can see all the, the roadblocks and all the gates and all the gatekeepers. And in my way of of wanting to produce something on Broadway and my friends and, and all of us, that was a very roundabout way of saying, I hope, but I'm not sure. But people will have to be extremely accountable and we will see cast change and be more diverse. We will see artists demanding more diversity backstage and more diversity in their world. I think before, if you were a writer, you know, it's happened before, but definitely like someone like Jeremy, who is, if you want my show, I demand these things. I demand there to be a black director, I demand a blackout night, I demand there to be tickets at this price. Artists will start demanding it and, and not feel like they have to give up everything to a producer or to a theater company. And so we'll, we'll see the change on stage, we'll see the change in the creative teams, and hopefully that will lead to a change in the audience because the Broadway audience has always been this group traditionally, and so that group is marketed to now. This is our biggest group, so we just market to them. You can market to everyone there's no reason that a show has to be marketed to select groups. It's all on your feed is about Gloria Estefan, so we had to market now to Latino people. First of all, everybody likes Gloria Estefan and like everybody can like this show. And also, if those people are willing to come to see that show, they're also willing to come see other shows, you just don't tell them that they exist. So we're gonna see a change throughout. I just hope it's from the top down and it really affects, affects the, from the audiences to ticket prices all the way up to who's producing and who owns the theaters.
3: Yeah, I think accountability will show up differently. At least I hope. Yeah, (laughs) I agree with you. I hope as well. Now that COVID's happened and everything and we have that pause, what are you doing right now and how does that play out as a producer, but yet nothing's being produced? Where are you at right now?
2: In February, I was really excited. I had been going on trips to different cities. I had been going to different regional theaters to meet with the artistic directors because trying to get a show there is really challenging, but if they can put a name to a face, I think that goes a a long way, what I said about meeting people when you can. And so I traveled to Seattle and I had trips planned for Chicago and Minneapolis in March. But before I did that, I went to South Africa and I had done a, a, personal vacation to South Africa last fall and I loved it I thought it was just like an amazing beautiful country and someone suggested to me that I should talk to the people in theater there and I was like yeah that's not a bad idea so newly minted Broadway producer I sent an email saying I'm a producer from New York coming to South Africa and I ended up meeting with people at every single theater they were all like so happy to meet they invited me to their shows and so I did a trip like a tour of South Africa and just went to these different uh, theaters that they have there. So that was something that I was working on. I was working on putting uh, a couple of shows like going into production. I had a tour that I was raising money for that was going to start in the fall, this fall, some shows that were in early developments, so right? All these things. And, and the nice thing about that period of time was everything was at a different place. So great, I'm raising money for a show that's going into production. I have a show that needs a workshop. I'm, I'm talking to some people in certain theaters and starting to make those connections. And I have some things that are still in the early days. Well, COVID came and every single show is in the exact same place. And every single writer is in the exact same place. And they all have so much free time to work on their show and ask questions. And so suddenly, All of my projects are at a place where they need full attention. And I have more time, so I can kind of give it to them. But also, everyone who's asking me of things has more time. So what I found has been so great is in theater, there gets to be a little bit of a hamster wheel of work, especially if you're a writer. You want to finish a draft so that you can submit it somewhere so that somebody will produce it. But if it's not the best draft, then they'll read it. And they won't like it so they won't produce it but if you don't finish it you can never present it and then yeah and so the, anyway so you keep going around and around and around like that forever and then you never know why maybe somebody just didn't read it and now people really have time to focus on what is on the page let's make this the best show it can be because there is no production that i'm missing or workshop or festival that i'm missing there's nothing so let's just focus on making it the best show it could possibly be so i've been doing a lot of that work also trying to find like new opportunities i'm working in virtual reality and trying to create like a virtual reality theater going experience. I'm doing these live immersive audio dramas where we're taking old shows or old novels that are in the public domain and kind of turning them to like an in your ear experience. So you can hear people talking over here, moving over here, something's behind you. And so we're doing all of that and just trying to find like what else I can do with the artists that I want to support with the work that I love. Everybody right now is focused on gearing up for when we reopen and what that's going to look like.
3: Thank you so much for being here, Blair.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having
3: (laughs) me. Such a great conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Broadway Refocused, produced by Fashion Consort. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about the Broadway Refocus Project and its musical theater curriculum, please visit BroadwayRefocus.com. You can also join the conversation on Instagram at BroadwayRefocused. Thank you to Trevor List, who developed our graphic design, to Phil, a.k.a. Corinne, for their voiceover work, and Spencer Powell for our theme music. Stay tuned for our next episode.